push back just a little bit because I've heard some remarkable statements from people promoting grass-fed beef saying that, you know, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in conventional beef is a cause of diabetes. And I'm going WTF. You're listening to The Tactical Kitchen. I'm Melody Barron, certified chef and nutritional therapy practitioner. And I'm Steve Barron's 21-year special operations veteran and certified personal trainer. Together, we are here to share our experience on the ketogenic lifestyle. Don't forget our disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors, and we don't play them on the internet. Now, let's get ready to chew the fat. Mmm, bacon. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Tactical Kitchen Show. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Peter Ballerstead, who's an agronomist. And what does that mean? Well, that means he's an expert in forage and ruminant animal agriculture. Not only is he an expert in forage and ruminant animal agriculture, he's also a very entertaining speaker. He is, and he is the leader of the Ruminati. (laughs) Well, with that said, let's go ahead and get on to the interview with Dr. Peter Ballersted. All right. Hey, welcome. We've got uh, Dr. Peter Ballersted today. He is a forage and ruminant agricultural expert, and we're very excited to hear what he has to say to our listeners about how you don't have to fear eating meat. I, I love that because that's a question we get so often. So Dr. Ballersted, could you maybe give us some of your background in what you do and explain to people what being an expert in foraging and animal agriculture actually means? Sure. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I've been in forage agriculture for most of my professional life. I have degrees in forage agronomy, which is forage crop production and utilization, as well as ruminant nutrition. So forages are those plants that are intended to be eaten by animals, either grazed or made into hay and then fed fed later. Um, Ruminants are those animals like cows and sheep and goats and deer and buffalo and bison and all of those animals. Um, They have the unique digestive system that allows them to live on a high fiber, low fat, poor protein quality diet. And then of course that's where we get milk and beef and lamb and goat and venison from. Um, I am currently working within the seed industry and I am working on the forage side so the grasses the clovers the alfalfas the legumes as well as another group of broadleaf plants that we call forbs so uh, agronomy is are all those topics dealing with soils and plant management Uh, can be in commodity agriculture like cotton corn wheat or in this case, in forages. And that's really interesting because a lot of people don't think about when you talk about raising cattle, that you're really talking about growing grass and forages. 
Absolutely. Storage material that, and wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that those are things that humans, we can't, we can't consume. Right. Uh, in, in some, the, the, there's a growing awareness amongst the ruminant livestock industry in the United States that's more prevalent in other countries that what you really are is a grass farmer, that you have temporary control over resources that support the growth of grasses, different species in different climates, different levels of productivity influenced by soil and weather and all that. Um, but that crop really doesn't have a cash value until you convert it into a saleable product that is livestock. Um, and, and so uh, in, in other countries, they've become far more sophisticated in looking at their management from the side of how do I optimize the amount of grass that I can grow and utilize directly by grazing animals. Because the more feed I can get an animal to eat directly, the cheaper my production costs, typically. Um, and, and so that's something that I very much hope we'll see more of in the United States. Um, and, and it is a crop. It is the most widespread crop. And as you mentioned, uh, very little of the Earth's surface is suitable for producing cultivated crops. So the, the arable crops, the, the wheat and, or vegetables or other crops that humans can utilize directly. Something between 3 and 4% of the entire Earth's surface is suitable. And we're losing that. That's a decreasing amount as we go forward in time for a number of reasons. Um, meanwhile, we've got something like 14% of the Earth's total surface, I'm including the, the, the oceans, is suitable for, is some form of rangeland. So it's primarily grassland. It's land that will produce, again, cellulose, the, the high fiber grass, to varying degrees that no vertebrate animal can utilize. We're dependent on having these microbial populations in the ruminant animal break down that cellulose to produce, as I heard you say in a previous podcast, the saturated, the, the volatile fatty acids, the short chain fatty acids. And so, you know, the cow is eating it. And just to, to simplify it, a, a, a cow on pasture is eating a diet, we'll call it 5% fat. You get much higher than that, and bad things happen. And actually, it's more than just fat, but we'll call it simplify. But by the time the, the ruminant digestive process takes place, maybe 70 to 80% of our energy ends up coming from those short-chain fatty acids. And so this, this critical link in the ecological chain between photosynthesis and us are the ruminant animals that are providing the fat and the high quality animal protein as well as other nutrients that we require in our diet and arguably aren't available from plants 
which can only be produced from a relatively small part of the earth anyway. So we need to recognize the essential nature of ruminants. And then as we look forward to mid-century, how are we going to feed this 2 billion more people and then feed all of humanity a diet that arguably is more appropriate than the current plant-based diet that humanity is existing on. Now, if you don't have enough calories, plants are good for avoiding starvation. At some point then, hopefully we become prosperous enough that now we want to look for more high quality animal products. And so the UN is saying 32 years, that we're going to have to double food production. We're going to have an increase in demand for animal protein, two-thirds, 66% increase in demand for animal protein. And where's that going to come from? How are we going to do that in a way? And, and I argue that we can't do it without ruminant animal agriculture. And we have to get better, more productive, more efficient, um, if we're going to meet those goals. And we can do that in a way that protects and enhances the environment, contrary to the nar narratives. You know, a lot of people, when you talk about increasing production and that we would need to feed so many more people, and um, if you look at that, like you said, that three to four percent of the earth that we can actually have cropland and grow those uh, vegetable crops and things like that versus, like you said, the 14 percent where it's rangeland. A lot of people have that fear of eating meat, first of all, because they're worried about we get that question a lot. They're worried about the quality. They're worried about the animals. Um, stress level at slaughter and all these things. And I know that you yourself are a proponent of a higher fat, low carbohydrate diet. If you could maybe explain what got you to that place and what you see in the industry as far as how animals are cared for to maybe help people understand what happens with cattle as they're raised and they go through this process. Sure. Personally, uh, in, in 2007, I had that moment of clarity that we each kind of have to come to, where I realized I was a uh, 51-year-old, obese, pre-diabetic, balding male. <laughs> and, 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 and I had had the experience of trying to eat the low-fat, eat less, you know, get more exercise kind of message. Um, my wife, Nancy, had been five years, so she started in 2002, oh, following uh, some form of low-carbohydrate based on what was available at the time, and you can think back to what was available. So fortunately, I had an in-house expert. She was very wise, I think, in her approach. She said, this is the way I'm going to eat. What would you like to eat? you know, kind of approach. She's a very wise woman. And um, so, but it took me a while to finally get fully on board. And then, you know, there's the process going forward. 
Um, I was out of agriculture at that time. In 2010, I got to attend a joint meeting of the Nutrition Metabolism Society and the American Society of Bariatric Physicians that was in Seattle. And I looked at the speaker list, and it was Gary Taubes, and, and Mike Eads was attending. I don't think he spoke, but uh, Eric Westman was there, and Steve Finney was there, and Jimmy Moore was there, and all of these people that I'd been listening to or reading. And, and then there were other people that I met. I met Adele Height there, um, and, and, and things like that. That just started me back sort of re-energized me. Um, I was working in, in um, high tech for a while out of, call, out of university position. So I became more and more convinced that one, we've been poorly served, shall we say, by <laughs> the, the experts that have given us nutritional information and the dietary policy that then governs everything else. And then I frankly became angry at the demonization of livestock industries. Um, I mean, everyone has an interest. There's, there's no such thing as a point of view that's nobody's point of view. Nobody's completely objective here. But some people in this conversation have been given a pass. And when you go back and look at it, you go, hmm, no, I don't think so. So I've been blessed with having the opportunity to talk to industry at a personal level about this because it's when you have a dairyman who has a heart attack who's in the hospital and can't get cheese on his sandwich because the dietitian says that's bad for your heart but meanwhile you're going to get the sandwich you're going to get the chips you're going to get the low fat milk etc 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 it's like um so so this animates me to a certain extent to talk to people to try to make sure that they know that there's valid research pointing in a direction different than the policy i'm also trying to get industry to recognize so so there's the personal you know producer level and producer for cattle industry the beef industry goes from cow calf all the way through retail and this is huge in in that sense there's relatively few actually ranching members but then you you click in all the rest of the people that play a part and then um you can look at the industry itself still seem maybe it's just the reality of of the time and it certainly is politically astute we don't want i think uh, it it might be problematic to have the beef industry seen as too far out in front of a low carb high fat ketogenic whatever message because then that makes it just too easy for people to marginalize or discredit the message oh that's just big meat right they've they succeeded with that to give us the dietary guidelines um and 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 that has helped keep that travesty in place now i understand that but 
I would suggest there's a real possibility that we could see a tipping point in the near future where enough people become aware of this message and reality. Enough people become aware of the personal experience of all the people like yourselves, like myself, like so many others, that then, okay, we're just we're not listening to that message anymore. Now we want these products. And so my question then is what as an industry in the various industries, are you doing to prepare yourself for that tipping point? Or are you going to be left behind still promoting, you know, 29 lean cuts of beef or whatever that message is. Uh, to your point about the difference between the reality and perception of what goes on in production, um, I guess it's easily most succinctly wrapped up in beef animals don't spend their entire life in a feedlot eating corn. That, that's, right. that's, that's just a myth. And so many people that I think we have talked to who, especially who are vegan, that is one of the first ideas that they have in their mind is that this animal is born in basically this idea of slavery mm-hmm. and fed, you know, trash per se to fatten it. And then it's, it's slaughtered in a way that causes it immense stress. And so then you're eating all these poor quality things, which I think that's the perception that a lot of people who are anti-meat put out towards the media and the media gobbles that up, spits it back out to us. And I know that you have firsthand experience with this industry. Yeah, I, I work with, there are other people that we could bring into the conversation that can talk about actually measuring animal stress as it moves through the slaughter process um, and, and improving handling facilities and the behavior of everyone involved in that process. There is a tremendous amount of effort now being put in to ensure animal welfare. And animal welfare is different than animal rights. And animal rights comes from an anti-human perspective that says that animals and humans are equal. And in fact, humans and bacteria are equal. (laughs) And, And they look at humans as a plague on the earth and, you know, there's some very dark uh, endpoints from that philosophy, and we've seen some recently. Um, but but you can't have rights without responsibilities, and nobody expects responsibilities from livestock. It, it, livestock do what they do, and we then, as wise managers, need to make sure that these animals live in as low stress an environment as possible for the same reason that stress in human lives isn't good. And then we can look at each each one of these myths ends up being it's like a game of whack-a-mole. So what is it you concerned about? Okay, we'll address that. Bam. Okay, now a new one pops up. Bam, 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 bam. But you have to take them. You have to pull this knot apart and deal with each one. But let's get back to is human health important? And is human flourishing important? 
then are you more concerned about the well-being of your fellow brothers and sisters or are you more concerned about earth in quotes we might need to get that sorted first and and looking at at dr ede uh georgia ede gave a presentation at breckenridge and one of her slides talks about how for many of the people who go the plant only route the majority of those are women the major and and, a, and a, an important part of their belief system is they're more concerned about the earth and their own health and by extension the light the the well-being of their possible children now that wasn't part of her slide but looking at that slide going wow how does that work itself out in your life you know that right there, there's a number of things there for us to to kind of deconstruct it's legitimate to be concerned about the welfare of the animals. It's obviously legitimate to be concerned about the safety of our food supply. It's obviously um, legitimate to be concerned about the environment as long as we have some factual information to back those things up. And then we can kind of rank them in some logical way. And so, you know, eating beef is not a hazard to your health or the environment. Not eating beef won't save the planet. And it may, in fact, harm your health. Uh, and, you know, we can go down that list. And part of what I do is I just try to point people to information and just say, yeah, just relax you know one part of enlightenment is to lighten up and, <laughs> that's and, so true and and we're we're dealing you know so one of my questions is if it's true that 200 people today in the united states are going to have some part of their body cut off because of diabetes and the standard of care for diabetes in the united states then what are we contrasting that with in terms of environmental impacts and story? So let's weigh these things here, really. Right. right. You know, so, I, I heard you say recently, and I loved this, because many people have this idea that the production of, of cattle harms the environment and and, you know, that's something we're talking about with women uh, going vegetarian or whatever to try to preserve the earth. But you have said several times that raising these animals in a sustainable way means that they are a uh, they are reducing our carbon footprint, that carbon element that everyone worries about, you know, we're polluting the environment, but they actually help reduce that. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so um, a, a cow grazing grass, any, and I'm just sticking with cows, but any ruminant, because wildlife ruminants are a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions as well. But any, any ruminant grazing grass and therefore emitting, so there are products of the r r ruminant digestive process 
in addition to the volatile fatty acids, which we've talked about, there's microbial protein that's formed. They also, re, you know, ammonia is produced as well as CO2, as well as methane. Now, people are very concerned about methane and CO2. Both of those forms of carbon had to be formed from the feed that that animal ate because animals aren't, you know, cows aren't alchemists is one of the lines. They're not creating carbon. <laughs> and if it's going to come from the food that they ate, it had to be absorbed by the plants from the atmosphere because they're not taking it up from the roots. It's coming from the atmosphere. So now we begin to see a cycling of carbon from the atmosphere being fixed in photosynthesis into carbohydrates that are then ingested by the animal. And then part of that is then re-released to the atmosphere. Point number two is that CO2 is an absolutely essential trace gas. Um, we are at geologically historic low levels of CO2. In fact, plant growth is somewhat limited by the present CO2 levels. If we didn't have the microbes in the rumen or in the environment to break down that fixed CO2 that's in the cellulose, then we would actually see a stagnation of life on Earth within about three decades. Wow. Um, you know, welcome to my world. It looks very different than the, the um, <laughs> then, okay, back, back to the first point. So we're fixing, when a plant grows, let's say a thousand pounds of, of feed above ground, a grass plant, thousand pounds per acre, you've got about a thousand pounds per acre in roots. Wow. So the, the growth is mirrored. So now when we come in and we graze that off to some residual level, maybe as much as 500 pounds. Let's just say that. So I'm going to, we've grown, you know, I'm going to take 500 pounds off as, as the grazed crop. I'm going to leave 500 pounds on, you know, above ground, and I've got 1,000 pounds in the soil. So now we have to realize that for that 500 pounds that go into the cow that then some portion of gets released, I've fixed a lot more that's still remaining out in the field. And so that, and then because when you, graze a grass plant, the roots below ground actually get sloughed to a certain extent. They, the plant doesn't need them anymore. And then as it regrows, it will reestablish a root system. So you're pulsing organic matter into these soils where it has a relatively low turnover. There are concerns about methane. Again, the difference between the public perception and the actual research is very different. And again, we're learning new things all the time. It should not be a concern to people and certainly weighed in the balance with, you know, the statistics about the impact of metabolic syndrome worldwide uh, and the impact on humanity. 
it, it just it boggles the mind how skewed the conversation has gotten. But again, I, I, what would it have been like to be a lipidologist in the 80s and really understand what was going on, but watch what was happening? And now as I access those ancient memory sectors, I can remember having nutrition classes from emeritus professors in the early 80s who were trying to say, it's not quite what you're hearing and <laughs> wow. trying to give us stuff. But, you know, what do you know? They're old. They should be retired, you know, whatever. They're just not up to date. Well, I wish I could make amends to them now. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were definitely raging against the machine uh, back in those days, trying to preach a, a, you know, a healthy fat diet, but getting suppressed by all the, the low-fat mantra. Or, it, or at least saying – there's not the evidence to support their argument. Right. Let alone some contradictory evidence that, you know, you may actually be causing some harm. So one of the things that happened in my journey is reading good calories, bad calories and getting angry at, you know, how did you do this? How, how could you do that? And, and when I get colleagues to read that book, a similar sort of response. One said, I couldn't get a paper published in the agronomy journal doing that. Well, that just points out that people need to understand that various disciplines and communities are not equivalent. And so I talked to people saying, you know, veterinarians and animal nutritionists can ask questions that human nutritionists and medical science can't because they can do things that you can't do with humans. That's so interesting. For, for an ethical good reason, Dr. Mengele. I mean, you, <laughs> and, and so uh, at one talk I was saying, you know, it's, if, if I want to do a plant nutrition study. I can go out and find a uniform plot of land. Heck, I can even do a greenhouse pot study. I can do a hydroponic study if I want to, you know, and, and, and I can use seed from the same lot so it's as uniform as it can be. And then I can put out my statistical design and I can plant it out and apply my treatments. And at the end, I can apply some analysis and be somewhat confident in the data that I get. If I do animals, it's a little bit more difficult because, again, there are, there are ethical review boards. You know, it's, it's hard to get large numbers of genetically similar animals, but you can get pretty close. You can control them. You can measure what goes in, measure what comes out, all that sort of thing. You can do... It's very difficult to find large numbers of genetically similar human beings that you can completely control for long periods of time, measure exactly what goes in, exactly what comes out, what they didn't eat, as well as get some sense of their uh, res uh, respiration, et cetera, et cetera. And Adele Height from the audience said, yeah, and at the end, sacrifice them to determine body composition. <laughs> yeah, that's difficult. It's hard to get volunteers for that kind of work. Um, <laughs> no one wants to volunteer for that study. But but in animal science, we have those kinds of endpoints. And at the end of the day, it's it is a business, it is an industry. And so 
what is the product that the marketplace wants and how well are we hitting those targets and the market to a large extent is going to inform and influence so today you know we have the pork industry now trying to kind of come back from the very lean carcasses that they were driving towards with genetics and with feed management and all that kind of information. Um, and I, I have a logo. Um, again, I'd leverage this idea, but take the U.S. pork logo. And it says pork, the other dry, tasteless white meat. <laughs> um, so you're now you now have the pork industry trying to put a little bit more fat back in. As I say to people in the, you know, human nutrition audiences, you know, veterinarians and nutritionists get fired every single day in the livestock industry. Because <laughs> wow. if, if you're not meeting the targets, the, the way that conversation does not go is it's your cow's fault. <laughs> right. you know, they're lying about what they're eating. so so the industry has really pushed like that's so interesting because a lot of people might not consider this when they go to purchase their meat and i find this a lot when i go grocery shopping that there is all kinds of lean meat available so what you're actually saying is that that demand for lean meat has kind of uh forced the market to produce cattle who produce that kind of lean meat or the, the, or the pork or whatever, because we've wanted that low fat for so long. And now we're seeing a trend in the other direction. I, I think so. And that's back to how are you going to position yourself for the tipping point when it occurs? Um, how are you going to shift from, in a way, bad-mouthing fat, which is part of your product? Um, so it absolutely... Nobody, nobody was marketing Snackwell cookies or low-fat yogurt prior to then being told by the government that that's, in fact, what we needed to be eating. So that's one of the reasons that the policy is, in fact, important, in addition to what you said, um, I think it was your first podcast where, I mean, this thing determines how we feed our school children, how we feed our military, how we feed our elderly, how we feed the poor. Um, it, it determines what you can and can't say in some institutions, you know, because it has to align with, all, you know, so, and it drives the marketplace. So it, it, there's reason to pay attention to that from a policy level. Um I think there's also, you know, one of the things that happened in some industries is if you go back not too long ago, the, the, the animals looked very different than they do today. One of the things that happened in the pork industry, for example, this is my understanding, again, I'm on the ruminant side, not the monogastric side, but once upon a time, lard was an important part of the pork industry. And what happened then was you ended up with this oversupply because they were sending these overfinished animals to market. They just had so much lard that it it became no value whatsoever and it ended up depressing the industry. So they kind of had to go through their own 
uh, re-examination. And then on top of that, you have this message that came in about, well, lard's bad, but, you know, Crisco's good. <laughs> right. Eat margarine. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Let's all eat plastic. It'll, it'll make us healthier. It'll make us well, better. We, we should last a lot longer if we eat plastic, right? Right. I guess we should. Well, you know, it's, it's a good survival ration because if you take that can of Crisco, you can use it as a candle. You can, absolutely. Many different uses for Crisco. Uh, it makes me so sad because I grew up in, in the era where my mom, you know, of course, was marketed to that butter was bad and lard was bad. And so by the time I was born in 71, we were full on Crisco and margarine in the house. And I didn't have butter as a kid. I didn't eat butter. I ate margarine all growing up, Crisco products, corn oil, um, there was never uh, hardly any real fat in the house. There was sometimes from cooking bacon. There was some leftover bacon grease. Yeah, but even that was looked at with suspicion, right? You know, it was, and a dark you know, secret. <laughs> you didn't tell people you had that in your house, and you sure right. hid that can up in the cabinet and didn't show it to anyone. Right. Well, even today, where recently we've done, we tried our, our carnivore, all animal protein diet, and we did that for, for 90 days. And we had other people try it as well. But when you talk to them, what you notice is they don't tell anybody what they're doing because they don't want to have to deal with that conversation of, I'm eating only meat. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So there's that reality needs to be kept in mind anytime you see, you know, kind of survey based data. Because it's been long enough now, we, quote, know, close quote, what we should be eating. And so that right. influences the answers we give people. Um, and, and it also sort of uh, influences people who pay no attention to the advice, then are going to be different in a lot of ways than people who do. And so the people who have listened, you know, the health conscious, they're probably listening and eating less red meat, for example, but they're doing lots of other things too. Exactly. There's usually a lot more sugar in that diet uh, or carbohydrates. Even if there isn't, you know, the the health conscious are probably exercising more. They're probably smoking less. They're probably taking a multivitamin goodness knows, all kinds of things. They may just be constitutionally different. We have no idea. All that the people taking the survey know is they're eating less red meat. Therefore, you know, it, it all gets associated. Um, the, the things that I'm finding most exciting are when I listen to the people who are digging in and finding, you know, there really is no nutrient essential nutrient in the human diet that can't be provided from animal source foods. It doesn't just have to be beef or lamb or whatever. That I find a revolutionary idea. And so then on top of that, there are all these other issues that someone might twitch at. You know, what what about the rainforests? Um, (laughs) What about them? Um, Have you been there? Um, and it's not to make light of environmental degradation, but there's a more nuanced conversation that needs to happen there. But in addition, you, you have this, I I think it was Dr. Crofts 
who had a relatively recent paper talking about how hyperinsulinemia is now this unifying theory of chronic illness. Mm -hmm. Virtually any, any chronic illness you want to look at has some linkage, association, maybe even well-established to chronically elevated insulin levels. If that's the case, and if we're somewhere between 50 and 75% of adult Americans being in that category, then nothing else matters. No, that's a global crisis. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah, it's a global not just crisis. Us. But it seems like U.S. tends to get more diluted by this. I, 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 maybe that's not true. Um, the the if, if you're starving, you have one problem. Yes. <laughs> and if you're well fed, you'll make hundreds, and and we've made hundreds. So that is so true. So the arguments against eating meat, anything to do with health, needs to be compared to that unifying theory of chronic illness in the sense that, well, animal products aren't going to raise insulin. Certainly not when we take a a more nuanced, like Dr. Bickman's uh, talk where he looked at the the response of not just insulin, but glucagon to protein. Yeah. Part of a low carbohydrate diet. And so I, I think it's Amber O'Hearn who says that, you know, how, how much of what we, quote, know is determined from human beings on carbohydrate-based diets. And that is, that is very profound. And I heard her say that. And I did listen to Dr. Bickman in his uh, lecture on the glucagon and insulin ratio, which I found was really interesting because a lot of people on keto or carnivore also have that fear of I'm going to eat too much protein and then I'm going to have gluconeogenesis and that's going to be like I ate a chocolate cake. And it's just interesting that I find what we've done is we've raged against mother nature. And this is how we have lived for millions of, or, you know, thousands and thousands, million, a couple of million years. We've lived on ruminant animals. We've lived on hunting and killing and eating. And maybe we found a few things here and there that were growing wild that we could eat. But the basis of our diet has been meat. We've raged against that to the point where we've, we're, we're slowly and, well, maybe increasingly killing ourselves with this idea that it's bad to do that. ILO, I think, was the... the lead author on the paper, but I've certainly heard Dr. Eads say that um, we didn't evolve to eat meat. We evolved because we ate meat. And yeah. that Rangham and others would suggest it's also because we learned to cook meat and and process it in some way. You know, the, the ruminants evolved prior to the primates. The grasses, you know, well before that and our niche was being able to be these endurance hunters that could run large herbivores to death uh, okay. after, after we got done scavenging <laughs> and then realized that we could, you know, operate cooperatively and, and maybe even with dogs uh, and, and run these animals until they succumb to heat stroke. That's, that's, you know, 
Yeah, nature's a mother. Um, <laughs> yeah. There is no fairness. The, no, she's supremely indifferent. Um, the which is part of the mythology that you know that it's natural. It's this, that, and the other thing. Um, it's arguably the way that we slaughter animals today is far more humane than the way we practiced for a million some odd years, and it's it's not. Um, again, uh, I'm such a name dropper, Dr. Uh, Georgia Ede, her talk um, just recently where she looked at uh, DHA and cited the, um, the, the research where in the review they were saying that th this substance is arguably essential for higher intelligence. I mean, this may be one of those things that truly makes us human, and it is solely sourced from animal source products. And, and its function is well established along with the other uh, long-chain uh, omega-3 fatty acids. So all of these and, – and so people talk about protein from meat, but that's not all you're getting from meat. No, right. You're getting fatty acids, you're getting heme iron, you're getting uh, the, the other nutrients that, that are, if not solely sourced, they're most available from. And, and then you can start looking at, well, what happens when you add some plants into some of these diets? What does that do to availability? And, and again, um, Georgia Ede showed one uh, study where you're looking at the response of zinc in human subjects where you're, you, you give them some amount of oysters, which apparently are rich in zinc. Mm -hmm. And then you can measure their response over time. And then you give another group the same amount of zinc, uh, oysters, but now you give it in combination with black beans. And you see half of the serum zinc level response. That's fascinating. Half. And then corn tortillas, and you have no response. So plants uh. can actually, as part of a diet, can actually interfere. So now we've got to say to people, just because you can determine it's in a food, doesn't mean it will be available to you as part of a diet. And then we could talk about the difference between plant protein and animal protein. So, so, so much of this conversation has been so unjustifiably simplified. And when you start digging into some of this, again, it's just, you know, bang your head again. How did we get here? I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really great conversation about why did we all of a sudden think that we needed to eat all these vegetables to be healthy? Like, where did that come from? It didn't come from a science background. Where did it come from? Well, um, so to a certain extent, um, that we do have the tradition of people who were subsisting. Okay, so and and in climates where you actually had winter. So food supply, relatively limited, we're in some kind of stored food system. And again, we're talking pre-refrigeration, pre-large access to canning. So this is going to be dried. This is going to be 
fermented, where fermented, this is going to yeah. be some, or even root cellar, whatever, you know, cured meat, whatever. By the time you got to springtime, your food supplies drawn down pretty much. So you've probably been on limited rations for a while and poor quality by that point. And, and now you've got these greens that are growing out in the world, right, in your environment. So you can go grab some of those and eat those and maybe they'll have like a tonic effect. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll buy that. One of the things that I learned about the famine in Ireland was before the fungus showed up, you already had people who were, for the last month preceding harvest, basically in starvation mode. Because last year's crop has run out and you didn't have enough to carry you that extra month. Yeah. And, and so you were out, you were already on the edge and and then when you had this fungus come in it it just destroyed crops it lowered yield and it destroyed it lowered the storage value or lifespan of tubers and so that was just an all this extra whammy that that impacted that so okay we've we've got that kind of an experience um we've got this, you know, they add variety to our diet and some people can eat them and it's fine. It's great. It's wonderful. Um, but then somewhere along the line, we got this idea that we had to have five a day. And then we got this idea that, that fruits and vegetables could be hooked together like one category. Right. Like, well, that, that was brilliant marketing. That was almost as brilliant as calling corn oil and soybean oil vegetable oils. Yes. Yes, exactly. There's nothing to do with vegetables. <laughs> nothing to do with vegetables. Exactly and you, right. The five fruits and vegetables a day, from my understanding, came from a closed-door meeting within the agricultural community to say, hey, we need to sell more fruits and vegetables, so let's do a campaign. People need to eat five colorful fruits and vegetables a day. In, indeed. It, I mean, there's there's that industry. Um, you also had some of this growing out of our wartime experience, mm -hmm. where yeah. Victory Gardens and all that to, to, to help stretch a food supply. Um, you've got the narrative that says, well, we need all these, what does Georgia call them, plantioxidants. Um, uh -huh. You know, there there has to be something essential in these to make us eat them. So this story about antioxidants being this essential part of our diet, uh, all of those are questionable assertions, especially when you say, well, what, what would happen if you ate a diet that had less of an oxidative stress in the first place, rather than trying to get something to counteract that? Well, exactly. I, we, we've talked to people that say, well, I know so-and-so who, who went vegetarian or vegan and they got so much more healthier and what we point out is it's not always what you're eating, but what you're not eating anymore. It's what you yeah. cut out of your diet that made you healthy, not what you added into your diet. In, indeed. Um, my, my wife's sister ha, uh, said at one point, you know, that their plate hasn't seen a vegetable for a long time. A lot of people <laughs> are really, they're grainitarians. They're not vegetarians. Uh -oh. um, or they're, you know, they're so so you've you've got that and then 
almost anything's better than the standard American diet. So as you said, if you if you made the change of what is it? Something like almost is it almost eighty percent of our calories are coming from added, you know, seed oils, yeah, uh, uh, processed cereal products, and added sweeteners. Those exactly. three categories. Yeah, and when you talk about that, and you talk about processed foods, and you have the uh, the wheat that goes into it that has to be fortified with B vitamins, and then you look at why don't we just eat where the B vitamins eat from where the B vitamins are really bioavailable, which is our animal products. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I I keep looking for someone that can help me. Um, once upon a time, we didn't have good transport, we didn't have good refrigeration, and we were also predominantly a rural society and, and mostly an agrarian society. So meat was something that was handled very differently than it is today. Then you had the revolution that saw so many of these people move to cities know, really, uh, World War One kind of era is a big tipping point. And then post-World War II is another huge tipping point. But it's only been since World War II that we've had refrigerators in the home. Right? I mean, wow. when did we have TV dinners? <laughs> Which, by the way, helped the turkey industry. Because now people could have turkey year-round, right? And as opposed to being a really seasonal product uh, right around November. So all of those, everything is, it's it's not as simple. I I guess that's, I'd like people, one, I'd like people to become aware of an alternative nutrition message, Right. I'd yeah. like people to become aware of just how profound that message is. You know, it, it, once you take it on board, just from focusing on the human health perspective, I'd like people to start realizing that we got our dietary advice from the same people, or, or part of that messaging was we need to do this to save the earth. Back then, that was the message. And those, some of those same people are still around today saying exactly the same thing. So, okay, your, your record isn't too good here. Um, then learn that it's, it's, a ver- it's more complicated than we've been told by people who would like us to believe certain messages. And to pull things apart needs to be done with a great deal of circumspect uh, uh, approach you know and when when you have no experience in agriculture then maybe you should be a little bit more humble about advising what we should do to change agriculture um you know when the third leading cause of death in the united states is medical error and that's before we've ever considered the role of bad dietary advice in heart disease and cancer, which are the first two, or kidney disease, which is a little lower down, or, 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 right? I mean, if... if which it compounds the medical error message, doesn't exactly it? Exactly right. And, and they said in the same paper that the rate of 
of harm is 10 to 12 times greater. We're talking 300,000 was the cited number for the number of deaths. Mm -hmm. So 10 to 12 times more people being harmed. Okay, doc, right? When you get your profession sorted. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And in some cases, that's adequately washing your hands. Yeah, seriously. Um, then, Then you can come talk to us in agriculture where less than 1% is feeding you and a substantial portion of the world. That's a staggering statistic right there. Yeah. I mean, the average American today is more likely to have direct personal experience with the criminal justice system than with production agriculture. They're uh, at least three generations removed from life on a farm. Well, in, in uh, 1862, when they created the Department of Agriculture, nine out of 10 people were farmers. And now, like you said, you know, 1% of the population feeds 99% of the world. Well, or, or certainly 99% of the U.S. and then a yeah. substantial yeah. portion of the world because this is a worldwide thing. And, and people in the rest of the world could do more, but then, you, then you're going to get to issues like rule of law, private property rights stable politics, all of those kinds of things that also need to be sorted, and they should be. You know, if, if, if Adele's line about um, Americans love the idea of saving the world by shopping. Right, right. <laughs> it's so true. We want to show our virtue by buying the right product rather than doing the hard work of actually developing virtue, number one. Number two is how about get involved in some projects that could actually have an impact? You know, cause what is it? One to 2 billion human beings still don't have uh, electricity in their home. Maybe one, one billion. Uh, Hans Rosling, um, Swedish economist recently passed away, but he's got some excellent YouTube videos where you can actually see the difference between our perception and the world. So he asks the audience questions and they vote with their little clickers and then he mildly chastises them for performing worse than chimpanzees because a chip would have a random chance, you know, of selecting A, B or C, they, you know, and, and they're getting the wrong answer more frequently than the chimps would by chance. But, you know, he says that, you know, the good news is that 80% of humanity has electricity in their homes. The bad news is 20% doesn't. They all should. And then you could go from that and look at a number of things. So if we really wanted to make an impact, let's look at those kinds of things. And there's lots of worthy things that we could get involved with. Buying organic, buying grass-fed, buying XYZ label claim is not going to get you there. That's a point that I know we're kind of coming up on time. We've kept you for a while, but we get that question a lot, conventional or grass-fed. And people have that concern. And I know from looking how labeling works, you have to pay for labels. <laughs> you have to pay for you have to pay for that organic label. And it doesn't always mean what you think that it means. So when we talk about quality of, let's just say beef, what would your advice be to someone who is starting on a keto or zero carb or carnivore style diet, or just wants to add more of these ruminant animals to their diet? What would you advise for them to, to do? 
I would advise them that they can go shopping in the local supermarket with confidence and feel secure in the quality and safety of what they buy there. You should not stress your household um, budget by pursuing a label claim. Um, you know, for example, organic does not mean raised without pesticides. Organic does not mean local. We're a net importer of organic food in the United States. Right. Um, so those sorts of things. And then if there are specific concerns, I would urge people to look more deeply into it um, because basically there's good information to just put our minds at ease. Many of the claims just don't stand up to examining the data. So you don't need to be concerned about pesticide residues. You don't need to be concerned about antibiotic residues. You don't need to be concerned about omega-6 to omega-3. That's not the issue. If you are metabolically deranged, it's the <laughs> insulin. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need to focus on. I think that needs to be a hashtag. I'm metabolically deranged. Right. <laughs> that is such great advice because when we do talk to people, that is usually a concern they have. Hormone residue, antibiotic residue, pesticide residue. And when you're talking about organic, I totally agree with you on that, that it's not always what it seems. Um it's not the, the idea that we have in our mind of what organic is. And when you go to purchase that organic beef versus that, what we would say, conventionally raised beef product, they were treated, wouldn't you say, the same? Through Pretty much. Um, the, and I guess I, I want to make it clear. Some people have accused me of being a shill for the meat industry. Um, I don't work for the meat industry, so just so everybody's clear on that, I, I work in agriculture, so if that makes me a shill, okay, I'll accept it. There are issues that, that need to be addressed, and absolutely they should be of a concern, and there's a lot of effort going into working on those. Um, but from a consumer safety point of view, we should have confidence in what we have available to us in this country at a remarkably low cost point. And, and this is something that many people around the world have never had, are years away from having. And, and it, it just boggles, it, it, it is, it's part of the indoctrination that we've been subject to that um, you know, we back to the point, we've been told what we should eat, but we know what we like to eat. Right? We usually, yeah. you know, yeah, we do. <laughs> bacon is the gateway meat, right? It is. <laughs> so we liked, but, but, but we feel guilty. So now tell me that there's a form of bacon that I can eat with less guilt, salt. Sold, yes. And so, so no added, you know, no nitrates. 
Well, there's more nitrates in spinach than there are in bacon. And, 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 oh, by the way, nitrates is, in fact, necessary in human health. And, oh, by the way, they do have that little asterisk. And then below it says, except those contained in sea salt or celery juice. That's their source of nitrate that they're using to achieve the curing process. But I'm sure, I'm sure, absolutely sure, this is my sarcastic face. Okay. I'm sure that when they concentrated that celery juice, they removed anything else that might be in there. And Exactly. Right? right no. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, that that is such helpful information. I know for people who have that question about should they worry or concern if be concerned if their funds are limited. But, you know, here are people like we, we deal with every day that maybe have diabetes and they're spending an enormous amount of money on medication where if they just switch the diet, they could save all of that money and maybe put some money towards a little bit higher quality product if that's their desire. But they don't have to fear that. And they can just go buy what they can afford and be confident in it. Yeah. And, and you know, then if, if you really want to make an impact, maybe you could save the difference and at the end of the year, make a donation to some worthy goal, local, national, international, whatever. I mean, if you re or, or, or go on a mission trip of some kind and experience what life can be like for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and come back with a different level and perspective. Um, push back just a little bit because I've heard some remarkable statements from people promoting grass-fed beef saying that, you know, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in conventional beef is a cause of diabetes. And I'm going, WTF. (laughs) You are no better than the people who are telling us not to eat beef in the first place. Right. And so if somebody wants grass-fed beef is fine, grain-finished beef is fine, it's all fine. Enjoy it all. Um, Ted Naiman up in Seattle told me, and he's shared this story publicly, so it's of a, of a patient that presented who's homeless living in a tent. Okay. like to know the rest of that story because it probably right. impacts a lot of things, but okay. He goes to the secondhand store, buys a cast, used cast iron skillet. He's cooking on a butane stove. He goes to Safeway, buys the cheap 80-20 hamburger, buys eggs, you know, that are loss leader, right? Uh-huh. That's what he eats. It's costing him $7 a day for food and fuel. And in whatever period of time, I'll call it a year, I don't know, he's dumped 70 pounds of body weight and normalized his biomarkers. Wow. That's amazing. He's gotten healthy eating the cheap Safeway hamburger and eggs. Now, like I say, there's more to that story. I'd like to know those details. But so... Put that against any other narrative that says it has to be this, that, or the other label claim. Or look at people like Atkins or any of the people, the Eads, who did all that great work 
prior to the availability of those products, even in the marketplace, their patients undeniably got healthier eating the food that was available at the time. And I think we can make the case that the food we have today available to us, again, depending, you know, you're shopping the outside, you're not going in the middle of the store, that that food today is safer than what it was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, we have what we like to refer to as first world problems. We're deciding if we want conventional raised meat or organically raised meat and grass fed, grass finished. And so much of the world doesn't even have a choice that it almost may, it makes you, it should make us feel a little ashamed that we have shamed people into feeling like they have to spend an enormous amount of money to get an, an organic or grass fed piece of meat. And whereas they could just get, like you said, they could be confident in the store that they're getting a really high quality product because we are the leader in health and safety standards in our food, really. We're, we're certainly putting a lot of effort into that. It's not just, you know, kind of this mindless process that, that's somehow getting the animal from, you know, the, 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 the pasture to the feedlot to the retail counter. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of science involved, um, various people working in various disciplines, and we've got what we have available to us today. Um, it's really quite remarkable. And as you said, it, it's, it's part of the delusion of making people fear food, right? That, that right. we're going to, if anybody tells you that eating this way, you won't get sick, then put your hand firmly on your left rear pocket because somebody's after some money. Exactly. We don't know that. Nobody knows that. Now, we, we do know some things about, you know, conditions, like if you have hyperinsulinemia, if you have diabetes, we, we know that there are dietary approaches that ought to be considered first course, right? And, and we yes. see these dramatic results. But to speak confidently about, you know, eat this way, you'll never get sick. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, that that's out there. You know, life happens. No. Yeah, no one can guarantee that. There's too many other factors, environmental, genetic, genetic. luck. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, to, 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 what is the, what is the trauma of the stress that comes from fear? What penalty does that have on people? Um, and, and then let alone people that are of limited means and now, you know, what, what am I, you know, ha, ha, think of people who don't have kitchens as well equipped as the one that I get to enjoy mm -hmm. or that don't have secure food storage. In other words, they're sharing a refrigerator, you know, and now we're going to tell them what, but what's, what's our, so, and that's something that we ought to be concerned about in the United States, let alone the rest of the world. So to, to, to kind of, we've gone a long way from well, what the heck is an agronomist and what are you doing here? <laughs> um, there, there are 
sources of information, anyone who's interested, I would encourage them to reach out or begin doing a little bit of, you know, searching online in some of these topics and, and be aware of who it is that's presenting the information. It's always good to be skeptical. You know, there, anybody who tells you that the science is settled has just identified as someone who's not scientific. Exactly. I, I think that you probably face what we face when dealing with someone in their diet and their ailment. There sometimes is a disconnect. They're not connecting the dots. They're not connecting their food with how they feel. And so many people don't connect the food with the source of the food. We're so detached from where our food comes from. And so looking up some of the subjects you're talking about can bring us that connection to see how an animal is raised, what goes into it, that we should really respect that process. And when we go to the store, kind of think about that. What kind of work went in to put that into the marketplace? Yeah. And and let's, let's be aware, too, that we're talking about significant change in human behavior, right? Yes. Well, humans don't really like to do that. <laughs> Speaking as one, uh, you know, there is no pain in change, but there is a significant amount of pain associated with the resistance to change. And so many of us have to be pushed to that pain point where we finally go, oh, okay, right? Like, oh, all right, I give up. I'll actually achieve health. Yeah. <laughs> what was me? Fine, I'll eat meat, okay? Yeah, yeah. So, so let's make sure that the concerns that people are voicing are really legitimate and not just impediments or, or justifications for not making that change in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. What you're saying. All right. But what about the yeah, buts? Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. yeah but what about, and it's like, well, you know, at some point it's like, so how's that working for you where you are? I mean, does, you know, you, you seem to have this, problem why, why are you coming here in the first place so it, it's it's not to completely push the, the the conversation off the table it is to say as we've said you can be confident in the safety of the products and you can also be comfortable that in the beef industry a great deal of effort is spent in minimizing environmental impact sustainability and those issues and that a lot of these conversations have been unjustifiably oversimplified to 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 make a point to to make it acceptable and make it newsworthy Newsworthy, and and when you tease those apart a little bit you start going oh wait a minute when you're justifying not eating beef you're doing it for health reasons and for environmental reasons. Well, I know that the health reasons aren't valid. What about the rest of your argument? Or, you know, you can see the arguments. They, they kind of switch them back and forth to try to keep you on the, well, just don't eat beef. Yeah, and it's, it's really amazing because no one really talks about the impact of uh, crop, you know, just like corn, for instance, or soybeans and the amount of fossil fuel that it takes 
to produce a crop of, of that, you know, product, whereas they always focus on the environmental impact of raising cattle, but no one really mentions the environmental impact of all those crops that are being yeah, raised. And, and they use, they use questionable data, um, but at the end of the day, every single thing that we do in our lives has an impact. Absolutely. It's the circle of life. (laughs) Well, and and so somehow some of these we just don't pay any attention to, right? We're just going to give a gloss to that. Like, well, so how much of an impact does your central heating have or your home or your personal vehicle or, but you're going to point over here, this one thing over here, this, this needs to be, well, but at the same time, nobody looks at the horses in the United States. You know, yeah, we pick and choose yeah, always. Yeah. yeah, and and so our job needs to be to make those sorts of informed decisions as we weigh costs and benefits. And I would suggest, as as you've discovered, as you're seeing, as you work with people, we're talking about such a profound impact in the lives of human beings today, not projected a hundred years from now using models that can't predict weather or climate. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes I just, you know, every 30 seconds, someone in the world is going to have their leg cut off. It's amazing. And, and, and what we know is that when you start down that course, your prognosis is worse than many kinds of cancer. You're, you're likely to die sooner once you start that progressive amputation process, yeah. then many forms of cancer following diagnosis. Maybe what we need to do is get more respect for what diabetes is yes, and recognize that that likely is the result of humans trying to exist on a diet that's not optimal for them than what is optimal and then how is that going to be produced to f- meet the needs today as well as in the future? And we can't meet today's needs without room in an animal agriculture, let alone the world of 2050. And yes, there's room for improvement, but um, you know these animals are absolutely essential to the ecology of, of vastly different zones across the face of the earth and humans have a long history with them domesticating them for a reason and and um it's better for us we're not going to go back to being hunters and gatherers no we can't so then what well then you get people saying well there's too many humans and your answer is what? <laughs> what do you plan to do How about do that? that? <laughs> exactly. And we've had some very dark periods of recent history where that has, we have followed that again by the same people who say that we should be eating plant based diets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, and, and if you look at presentations like by um, Hans Rosling, you see that we haven't had exponential population growth since the 60s. It's been linear since the 60s. And we're now reaching this point where we may be approaching collapse because 
of an aging population with not enough young people, that's a problem. These things need we're, to be looked at, but we're not right. because we're too locked into some of the narratives that we've been having. Right. We're, we're pretty much Pottinger's cats. <laughs> you know, we, we keep declining every generation because of our poor diet. So it is time that we look at that and yeah. begin to change that so that we can, for future generations, maybe we can begin to reverse that. Uh, and we I, can do it this generation. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. It, it doesn't take much to start that shift. And I love one thing that you always have on your, I think it's your Facebook is the picture of you. I think it's you down eating grass. I think that's you. Yeah. The cows are saying, we eat plants so you don't have to. Yes. And you you always call um, the beef fermented vegetables. I think I've heard you say. It's a fermented plant product. A fermented plant product, <laughs> which is very, very comforting to me since I was a I, I practiced veganism for a short time and um, trying to find what worked for my health. And I never felt good until like I started eating high fat, low carb. I, I feel amazing. I eat primarily beef now. I feel amazing. I feel like we're age reversing, I hope. And uh, so a lot of the things that you presented in your uh talks at different conferences we've been to and then I've heard you say in different presentations online and in podcasts have been really influential in how we view uh, what we eat and the respect that we have for it. And so we really appreciate you taking time today to be here. And I, I would like for you to talk a little bit about the Ruminati and what that means. <laughs> so the Ruminati is my attempt at humor to, to just get more and more people aware of the essential role that ruminant animals play in our ecosystems and the essential role that ruminant animal products play in human health and flourishing. And it's an attempt to bring my agricultural tribe and my nutrition tribe together so that we can learn from each other. And it's, like I say, my attempt to be cute and humorous. Well, we were wondering if you came up with a Ruminati symbol. Well, somebody sent me one, and it's, it's a takeoff of Che Guevara, that, that just all black kind of design. Mm -hmm. and somebody had spray-painted this symbol of, of a cow's head with a beret on, you know, like the Che Guevara thing, yeah. and I, it, but it was off of um, a concrete block wall. So mm -hmm. you've got the concrete block lines around, and I'm trying to find somebody who's got the graphic skill to kind of leverage okay. that yeah. so that we could then create some t-shirts for it. <laughs> that would be great. We'd definitely like to have one of those. Yeah. Steve, Steve thought instead of, you know, like the Illuminati has the um, pyramid, maybe you could have a cowbell. Well, there's another option. Thank you very much. I am accepting suggestions. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured you might. So now, maybe people from Mississippi State University would get that, but I'm not sure that people from non-agriculture would understand the cowbell thing. But yeah, well, you know, you might have to put the Ruminati around it and yeah. <laughs> cowbell that. But yeah, if you come up with T-shirts, we'll be sure and uh, make ourselves uh, available to purchase those. So that excellent. we can excellent. support the Ruminati. Well, we really appreciate your time. And it's been an absolutely great conversation. Everything 
that you talk about is very important. And we hope our listeners, uh, you know, know that. And if they wanted to reach out to you or, or visit any of your websites, where would they go? You can find me all over social media. Uh, Grass-based <laughs> is my Twitter uh, as well as Instagram accounts. I have a Facebook page called Grass-Based Health. Um, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And if I can be of any help in the future, please reach out and ask. Uh, well, thank you so much again for being here. And we really appreciate it. Good health to everyone. Thanks for listening to The Tactical Kitchen. Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Don't forget to send your questions to btkquestions at gmail.com and visit our website, thetacticalkitchen.com.